This is the Locker Room Report, and I am yours truly, your host, Griffin Conant, welcoming you to the first ever episode of the Locker Room Report, a podcast dedicated to the college and professional football diehard. If you are a, if you are an avid football fan, you are going to love this podcast. And I'm not going to lie, guys, I filmed this whole ep- first episode already, and I somehow lost it because I did not save it on my computer. So this is the second time that I'm doing this. What a way to kick off this show. Uh, so without further ado, I'm excited to get going. Let's get this show on the road. First down for the Aggies here with five and a half to go. First quarter. Calzada. Flushed out of the pocket. Throws on the run. And he's got a man. Watermeyer again. Touchdown, Aggie. The six works first and goal. Calzada lofts it. Touchdown, AM. Anias Smith. Smith in motion, they'll keep it on the ground. Up the middle of Spiller. Spiller all the way to the goal line. He's in. Touchdown. And they block it. Alabama touchdown. Unless his feet were out, it's a touchdown. Rikers kick. Down to the three-yard line, the A-chain. And A-chain's got an opening. He's got world-class speed. He's gone. A-chain takes it coast-to-coast. Touchdown, Aggies. Perfectly and delivers it as well. And now wide open, Williams on the sideline. Touchdown, Alabama. Nobody over to cover him. Alabama win in a hurry. I don't know where they, it was close to not even being set on the play. First down, first down, Texas A&M. The three-minute mark. Toto is coming on a blitz. Calzada going to go deep to the end zone. He's got a man. Touchdown, Anaya Smith. He waits, he waits, he waits. And then oh. he gets rolled up in his left leg just as he lets a perfect pass for the touchdown. In the middle of the field, I would guess, unless they try something else, they're going to throw. Off his back foot, he lost one for Wattemeyer. And the flag flies in the interference. Seth Small, 10 of 11 on the year. From 28 yards away for an Aggie upset win. And it's good. He got it. That was Brad Nessler and Gary Danielson on the call on CBS. Wow, what a game that was between Alabama and Texas A&M. Seth Small hits a 28-yard field goal to knock off the number one ranked Crimson Tide. Winners of 19 straight and their first loss against an unranked opponent since 2007 which was Nick Saban's first year at the helm down in Tuscaloosa. What an incredible game. There's so much to take away from this game. I mean, the fact that Texas A&M 
eventually lost the lead late in the game. Alabama came storming back early on in the game. It seemed like they were trading blows back and forth, but it was Alabama who took the lead 38 to 31. And at that point in this ball game, I'm sure many of you like myself thought the ball game was over. I mean, when Alabama took the lead there with just under five minutes to go, actually it was exactly five minutes to go in the game, uh, thanks to a Jamison Williams seven-yard catch from Bryce Young. They're up 38-31. It's looking like this game's over. But Zach Calzada, the backup, who wasn't even supposed to start the season, he was the backup to Haynes King, the freshman. So what do you know? Calzada is inserted into the starting role pretty much midway through the first quarter against Colorado on September 11th a few weeks ago, actually about a month ago now. But he was inserted into the lineup, and what do you know? In a, in a low-scoring battle, he comes back, makes some big-time throws, and plays with his feet, beats Colorado in the Mile High City. Uh, and he gets a chance to do it again against Alabama, and boy, did he come through. He went 21 of 31, 285 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception. And I, for one, definitely did not expect Calzada to come out and perform the way he did against a Crimson Tide defense who was supposed to be pretty good on paper, and boy, they just did not have their best game. I know the stats may tell otherwise. I mean, the Crimson Tide only allowed 379 total yards throughout the game, but it was just the clutch timing of the A&M offense, the ability to pick up first downs on key third down conversions. Calzada just so accurate at the right time of the game. And I think the turning point of the game was when, of course, Alabama, they always come up with huge plays just throughout the game. The blocked punt halfway through the third quarter, I think, was a turning point in this game and the fact that AM was able to respond almost immediately. And I'm talking about the play right after the blocked punt when Devin Achain took it 96 yards to the house a mere 18 seconds after the Alabama blocked punt. Now, this increased the Aggie lead by two touchdowns, made it a 31-17 game, and it, it was just the perfect response to a Crimson Tide team that is so timely in making big-time plays. That's why they win ball games. That's why they've won 19 straight games and haven't lost to an unranked team since 2007. I mean, Nick Saban is a type of coach that his margin of error is very slim. And when you play for the University of Alabama, you're not going to make mistakes because he runs a tight ship. And the fact that A&M was able to answer was no doubt the turning point in this game. So once that happens, they go up 31-17, and they kind of trade blows the rest of the way. Alabama cuts it to a one-point game with eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And eventually they take the lead and convert on a two-point conversion based off the Jamison Williams seven-yard touchdown pass from Bryce Young. And at this point, like I said, ball game's over. I just don't think Calzada has, has what it takes to lead the Aggies down the field and tie the game. Well, we were all wrong because Calzada takes a 
low hit to his knee delivers a strike to Anias Smith in the corner of the end zone with three minutes to go to tie the game. Calzada is down on the turf. He's limping around. I mean, it looks like the guy's been shot. And, I mean, the guts from this kid to make that throw. The response from the Aggies all night is what won him the game, and specifically in that moment. I That, that was the moment I knew that Texas A&M was going to win that game. Well, what do you know? They get a stop on defense, exactly what they needed. Drive right back down the field to set up Seth Small's 28-yard field goal to knock off the undefeated Crimson Tide. So, a crazy game, one of the craziest games that we've had so far in this young college football season. And the thing that makes this so much sweeter for the Aggies of Texas A&M, well, we have to go all the way back to May when Jimbo Fisher was hosting a touchdown club in May. And uh, obviously, Fisher, an, an old assistant of Nick Saban, you know how bad he wants to beat Alabama, just like everyone else in college football. They're definitely going to circle that date on the calendar when they play the Crimson Tide. But he was quoted saying this during that touchdown club meeting, or whatever you want to call it. We're going to beat his ass when he's there. Don't worry. And I quote, So pretty strong words there from Jimbo Fisher. And get this, Saban's response, or at least the one that drew the most attention, was in golf? That's what Nick Saban said. He he said, in golf, Nick or Jimbo Fisher's going to beat me in golf? Which draws the uh, picture in my head. I mean, imagine playing a foursome with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. I mean, who's... Who's the better golfer there? I mean, that's that that's that's the dream right there. I mean, I, th- I think I'm, I I would make it in life if I were, was able to head out to the golf course and golf with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, and be able to say who was better at golf. But obviously, that's not what Jimbo Fisher was talking about. And Nick Saban, of course, his little smirk comment in golf. Uh, but he also followed that up with, "Well, I'm sure there will come a day, you know." And I quote, uh, "But who knew that day?" would come so soon, October 9th, 2021, Nick Saban loses to one of his assistants for the first time. Uh, I believe he was 24-0 prior to that game. So you knew that streak had to end at some point. I mean, Kirby Smart at Georgia, I mean, it, the, just the program that he's been running over there, you knew it was gonna, there was going to come a time where Nick Saban was going to lose a game. I mean, he's human. He's, he's, he's not a robot. Even though at sometimes you do feel like he's a robot, other than when he gets so mad on the sidelines, he's he's chucking his his headset and he's cussing out players. I mean, the dude shows emotion. He he's mad most of the time. I mean, even the littlest of play will piss off Coach Saban. You don't want to get on his bad side, but you just got to give props to the whole Texas A&M coaching staff, the players, the whole program. Just an incredible victory for that university. And in order for them to achieve where they want to go the rest of the season, this was a huge win. I mean, A&M was 3-2 coming into this game. They just suffered a loss against Mississippi State. Mike Leach and the air raid offense. They got the best of Jimbo Fisher last week. But not this week. 
because they put it to Alabama. They showed that they can compete with anybody in the nation. I always thought Texas A&M had one of the best defenses in the country, but they proved that Calzada, he is a gamer, and he can win football games when called upon. Now, Alabama, they got a lot of things to figure out. They've dropped number to number five in the college football rankings. Obviously, if they win out, they're going to make the college football playoff. There's no worry there. But, hey, they got a few tough games on the schedule that Nick Saban can't overlook. They're on the road against Mississippi State next week. Home against Tennessee. Those should be pretty easy wins. But they do close the season against Arkansas, who surprised a lot of people this season, and Auburn in Auburn. So, I mean, those are two games that won't be gimmies by any stretch of the word. And, of course, Alabama-Auburn, that's such a storied rivalry. Those two teams hate each other. So, yeah, I could see Alabama maybe dropping another game. And not to mention, they played Georgia in the SEC championship game. And many people in the country believe that Georgia is hands down the best team in college football. And I'd have to agree with them. They're ranked number one in the rankings for the first time in 50 years. Think about that. They have a legit defense and pretty good quarterback play. I mean, Stenson Bennett had to come in, the backup. Talk about a great backup. Stenson Bennett, the backup to JT Daniels, who, of course, transferred from USC. I like his game a lot. I think he can lead the Bulldogs to a national championship. But to have a guy like Stenson Bennett come in in a big game against Auburn on the road, that was a very clutch performance. So Calzada and Bennett, shout out to you guys. But Alabama, if they're going to win out, they're going to have to play Georgia in the SEC championship game. And from what I saw Saturday, I, I just I, I don't know if I can say that Alabama can win that game. Georgia is the better team right now. Of course, we're only at the midway point of the 2021 campaign. But you'd be foolish to say that Alabama should be heavy favorites in that game. You'd be foolish. Of course, Alabama's got to win out, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. But I don't know if I trust Alabama's defense right now. And their offense wasn't even the problem against the Aggies. I mean, Bryce Young did all he could. Went 28 of 48, 369 yards, three touchdowns, only one interception. How about the young running back, Brian Robinson Jr.? Of course, I say young, but he's a senior. But he's 6'1", 225 pounds, 24 carries, 147 yards. Looks to be a nut, like another great Alabama running back. They've had so many in recent years past. So that offense is fine. They're going to put up some points. But they cannot be allowing 41 points each and every week and expecting to win games. Like I said earlier in the year, they had a close call against Florida on the road, squeaked by on a two-point win there. And they even dominated Ole Miss for the majority of the game at home on October 2nd. Only gave up 21 points to Matt Corral, who I think is a bona fide superstar and 
definitely is a Heisman candidate right now at the midway point of the season. So am I nitpicking? Maybe a little bit. But if I'm nitpicking, God only knows what Nick Saban is doing to that squad right now. Very scary. I wouldn't want to be in that locker room. Um, And I have no doubt in my mind that Alabama is going to come out next week against Mississippi State and take care of business. They're 17-point favorites right now, and I don't think that game's going to be close. I'm so sorry, Mike Leach. You might have gotten the best of Jimbo Fisher a couple weeks ago, but I am uh, taking Alabama to the bank next week, especially after a loss. Nick Saban's going to have those guys tuned in and ready to go. So during the conclusion of the Alabama-Texas A&M game, as Seth Small lined up to kick the game-winning 28-yard field goal, Eli Gold of the Alabama Crimson Tide Sports Network, I don't know if you guys saw this or not, but he literally went speechless and did not call the final play of the game. It was literally just the crowd roaring and all of the fans and the student section storming the field. I have a clip. Take a li- take a listen here. What So I'm all for giving the viewer at home and the listener at home a great experience, right? But this guy literally went off the air for about a good 30, 45 seconds is what it seemed like. Obviously, you can hear the crowd roaring and just the reaction to Seth Small's game-winning field goal. But you could tell that... Eli Gold, he's not used to Alabama losing, so I'm sure he was emotional. I'm sure that um, he obviously didn't appreciate the Texas A&M fans storming the field, which, by the way, according to SEC policy, results in a fine. And I am pretty sure a few years ago, back in 2018, I believe it was, Texas A&M was fined $50,000. So the university was fined that much amount of money because they stormed the field and if you repeat a field storming incident they double your fine each time so texas a&m i believe they they now owe the sec conference two hundred and fifty thousand dollars because of this incident i i don't know if this is a fan safety thing or a player safety thing Obviously, the coaches and the players are just trying to get out of there. Unless you're Texas A&M, they were right in the center of the party there. I'm sure they were. Seth Small was getting hoisted by all of the uh, soldiers or whatever you want to call them in the 12th Man College Station. Uh, the service members. I, I guess that's a better word for it. But he was the hero of the night. But I'm sure Alabama was just trying to get out of there. But obviously, kind of a weird radio call there from the Crimson Tide Sports Network, Eli Gold on the call. Once again, I'm all for giving 
the listener kind of that experience of being at the game and there's there's times where you you know you're you're tuning into a broadcast and the commentator will just go silent so you can kind of just experience the sight and the sounds of the game but 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 I think this was a little over the top from Eli Gold he literally just went off the air I, I think he went and took a potty break for about 45 seconds and he came back and did not like what he saw with the fans storming the field so shout out Eli Gold I'm sure Alabama won't lose anytime soon, or at least in the next few weeks, so he doesn't have to worry about that in the near future. But uh, Eli Gold, that a boy. So I would love to keep talking about this Alabama-Texas A&M game, but I think it's time to move on to what was possibly an even better game on Saturday, and that was between the Oklahoma Sooners and the Texas Longhorns. We all know it's a storied rivalry, They play deep in the heart of Texas there in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl every year. And this one, for sure, did not fail to disappoint. And what a start it was for the Texas Longhorns. How about this? They go up 28-7 in the first quarter thanks to three touchdown passes from junior Casey Thompson, who eventually finished the day with five touchdowns on 20 of. 34 passing, 388 yards. But the three touchdown passes put Texas up by three touchdowns in the first quarter. And at this point, if you're a Texas fan or even just a football fan, you're thinking, wow, Texas is going to run away with this one. I mean, blowout city here in this first quarter. Uh, Unfortunately for Spencer Rattler, who came in starting the day, he did have a rushing touchdown in the first quarter, which was the only score that the Sooners were able to muster in that opening quarter. But just too many turnovers from Spencer Rattler, 8 of 15, 111 yards, had a pick, also fumbled in the first half, was later benched for highly touted quarterback Caleb Williams, who is a true freshman from D.C., 6'1", 218 pounds, and he came in and gave the Sooners the spark plug that they needed at the exact right time. So that was courtesy of ABC, Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet on the call there. So that puts it a 28-14 game. Sooners cut it to a two-touchdown deficit thanks to that Caleb Williams 66-yard run. And what happens next is just simply the pure athleticism from Texas running back Bijan Robinson. Some, many considered him to be a Heisman finalist so far at the halfway point of the 2021 season. And boy, did he put on his best Reggie Bush impersonation. Robinson showcasing his nifty moves there, almost reaching the end zone, but was pushed out at the two-yard line, but it didn't really matter. 
because Casey Thompson was able to throw his fourth touchdown pass of the game, connecting with Jared Wiley on a two-yard pass, which put Texas up 35-17. to So a field goal and a touchdown by OU to cut it to 11 points, and Texas answers right back with a touchdown. The Longhorns have got to be feeling pretty good at this point in the game, but not so fast. A field goal to cut it to 35-20, and another field goal answered by Texas to put it back up to 18 points, only for Caleb Williams and wideout Marvin Mims to steal the show. Are you kidding me with that catch? Marvin Mims laying out on his back, fingertip grab to tie the game at 41 apiece. Not to mention, Chris Fowler on that call is absolutely losing his melons. I'm, I'm surprised he didn't wake up Sunday morning with multiple strained vocal cords. Uh, boy, he was very, very animated, using his outdoor voice, no doubt, in that call. But what a play. What a throw by Caleb Williams kind of running to his right and throwing off pretty much one foot to complete this 52-yard pass. So at that point, OU has staged a comeback. They were down as many as 21 points, kept it at 18 for most of the third quarter and second half, but with seven and a half minutes to go, they tie the game. And 15 seconds later, thanks to a fumble by the Texas Longhorns on the kickoff, the Sooners answer right back with an 18-yard Kennedy Brooks touchdown to put the Sooners on top, 48-41. to And at this point, Texas fans are losing their minds. But not to worry. With a minute and 23 to go, Casey Thompson completes his fifth touchdown pass of the game, a 31-yard pass to Xavier Worthy to tie things up. But unfortunately, they gave the Sooners just a little too much time. Absolutely incredible stuff right there. Kennedy Brooks taking it to the house when Oklahoma was just trying to get in field goal range to set up a Gabe Burkich kick. Uh, you know, 33 yards roughly would have been about a 50-yard field goal attempt. So not a gimme. They were obviously trying to get a little closer. But how about the call by Lincoln Riley to go direct snap with your running back? with only 13 seconds to play and to put him under center and have him run a direct snap and to take it to the house in the fashion that Kennedy Brooks did was one of the more miraculous things that I've seen in college football in quite some time. I mean, this was an instant classic between these two teams that are soon to be heading to the SEC in in probably a little over a year. So the good news is we're not going to be losing this game because both these teams are going to the SEC and the Red River rivalry will continue. But boy, this one, 
stacks up as one of the greatest in this series history. Not only because Oklahoma came back down 28-7 in the first quarter, but the fact that both teams were exchanging blows back and forth, putting up a combined 103 points. I mean, this is what football is all about. How fun is is it to watch just great offenses go to work? There's a lot of fans out there who don't necessarily like a lot of scoring, a lot of offense. They're maybe more defensive-minded. They like to see more defensive duels. But this is what it's all about. It's exciting. Points are being scored. And this is how it should be. That's why college football is so fun. The passion, the traditions, the pageantry of just the game itself in the Red River rivalry, in the Cotton Bowl, in Dallas, Texas. That's what makes college football so great. And I credit Lincoln Riley with one of the ballsiest calls I've seen in quite some time. Direct snap to your running back. And he takes it 33 yards. That's putting the game in your players' hands and trusting that they're going to make plays when it matters most. For Texas, this is absolutely heartbreaking. For first-year coach Steve Sarkeesian, this is a game you got to win. You go into it 4-1, and one, you knock off OU. All of a sudden, if the Longhorns were able to win that game, they would have springboarded OU in the Big 12 standings. That was Texas's only loss in Big 12 play so far. But now that OU has the tiebreaker over them, thanks to this 55-48 to win, they're going to need Oklahoma to lose a game down the road. And it doesn't get any easier for the Longhorns as they play host to the Oklahoma State Cowboys a week from this last Saturday. So that's going to be on the 16th, 10 a.m. kickoff against undefeated Oklahoma State, who has surprised many with their 5-0 start. They're ranked 12th in the nation right now. It's going to be a good one, but Texas has got to come to play. Because if they drop two straight in Big 12 play, oh man, that is not going to look good in Austin, Texas. But what a game out in Dallas, Texas in the Cotton Bowl. Oklahoma remains undefeated and keeps their playoff dreams alive with a win against their arch nemesis. How about a just a big time Big Ten matchup between Penn State and Iowa? Top five matchup. Hawkeyes coming in at number three in the nation. The Nittany Lions coming in at number four. It's it's pretty rare when you can get a top five matchup in college football outside of, you know, the national championship, maybe some other big time bowl games. But, boy, this was a huge game this early in the season just because so much was in play, not only in the Big Ten Conference, but for playoff implications. And, boy, did this game not disappoint. This was one of those grind-out games. I mean, such a typical Big Ten game. You had the big boys up front dominating the line of scrimmage on both sides. And it came down to, unfortunately for Penn State, They lost their quarterback, Sean Clifford, halfway through. And they really could just not recover. I I know Clifford didn't really have as good of a game as he wanted to. He went 15 of 25, buck 46 through the year. Two interceptions, which were pretty costly. But against a defense like Iowa, who many believe is 
probably the best defense in the nation at not only total defense, but just enforcing turnovers. And those were mistakes they just could not afford to make. Iowa is too good of a football team to fall behind in the turnover margin. Penn State even went up 14-3 early in the first quarter, but after that it was pretty much all Iowa. Backup quarterback for Penn State, Taquan Robertson came into the game, the true sophomore out of Orange, New Jersey. He obviously has talent, super talented guy, but he was not up for the task against an elite defense in the Iowa Hawkeyes. And the Hawkeyes showed that they belong in the playoff conversation. I thought coming into the game they were supposed to be favored, and they proved that. And I think they proved a lot of people that even in a kind of a grind-out, ugly win, as some people might say it was, they be, they came out victorious, and that's all they needed to do. But Iowa's 6-0. Right now, they're the best team in the Big Ten. But their schedule coming up, it's pretty favorable, actually. Home against Purdue. On the road against a slumping Wisconsin team who has done nothing but disappoint so far this season. On the road against Northwestern. Home against Minnesota. Home against Illinois. And on the road against Nebraska. So this schedule sets up for the Hawkeyes. That, that, that was their toughest game of the year against Penn State right there. And obviously depending on what happens in the other division in the Big Ten between Michigan, Michigan State, and Ohio State, Iowa will play one of those teams in the Big Ten title game. And I have no doubt in my mind that that is going to come true. And with a defense like that, I mean, that's championship caliber defense. The farm boys in Iowa, they showed out, they balled out, and props to that whole team, the whole squad, coaching staff, even give props to Penn State. They fought as hard as they could. They just came up a little bit short in the end. Even had the ball at the end of the game trying to drive in at least field goal range to try to tie it up. But it was just too much to overcome for the Nittany Lions, who the rest of the way, they've got pretty much the opposite schedule of the Hawkeyes. They'll be home against Illinois. Should handle business there. But then they travel to Columbus in the horseshoe. They'll take on Ohio State there. That's a tough game. They'll play Maryland on the road. Home against Michigan, which is a huge game. Rutgers, and then to end it on the road in East Lansing against Michigan State. So there's a lot of good teams in the Big Ten right now. Penn State, they'll fall to seventh in the rankings after that loss. Michigan moved up a spot to eight. Ohio State sitting at 6. Michigan State creeped into the top 10. How about the Spartans for Michigan State? Mel Tucker, he darted Boulder, Colorado. Midnight Mel was what they were calling him back in Colorado just because he dipped in the middle of the night, didn't tell anybody that he was accepting the job in East Lansing. But, hey, it's worked out for him. He's 6-0. and He boasts a top 10 squad. And I believe they are legitimate contenders in this Big Ten conference. And hey, if you can win this conference, well, shoot. Michigan State, you've punched your golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, which in the college football realm is the college football playoff. And how about Jim Harbaugh's Wolverines? 
The dude enters the 2021 season on the hot seat, just getting blasted by every national and local media outlet. And he has led the Wolverines to a 6-0 start. But boy, that came with some scares on the road against the Nebraska Cornhuskers in Lincoln. And my goodness, Nebraska did just about everything to lose this game. There were so many moments throughout the night where you thought, hey, Scott Frost is finally going to get over the hump and record his first win against a ranked team. Coming into this game, he was 0-9 against top 25 foes. So throughout the game, I mean, they even had the lead at one point, 22-19. Late in the third, Michigan storms back, takes the lead off a Blake Corum 29-yard run, 26-22, And then, what do you know, Adrian Martinez marches down the field on a five-yard run, takes the lead right back with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And at this point, you're thinking, maybe Nebraska can do it. Maybe they can pull off this massive upset. And boy, this would be quite the program builder for Scott Frost and the Cornhuskers. But, unfortunately for them, Adrian Martinez turned the ball over again. After Jake Moody kicked a 31-yard field goal for Michigan to tie the game with three minutes left at 29 apiece, he fumbles the ball on a quarterback keeper, setting up the Wolverines in prime field goal position. Now this is something all too familiar for Nebraska and its program and its alumni and fans. They just can't get out of their own way. They shot themselves in the foot once again, and I just think that this is becoming just something that is way too common. This is just not a winning formula in any level of football. And at what point do you ask yourself, if you're Nebraska, is Scott Frost the guy or not? I know they signed him to a big contract extension over the offseason, which I was utterly shocked by. He hasn't accomplished anything in Lincoln yet. So the fact that they were extending his contract after not going to a bowl game, back-to-back losing seasons in his first couple campaigns, it just makes no sense. And I can see that Nebraska's been way more competitive this year, only losing to Oklahoma by a touchdown, keeping it close with Michigan, in a game where they probably should have won. But right now, you're standing at 3-4. and Once again, a losing record. These games just aren't translating into wins. And they're close. And I feel like they're probably going to upset someone sooner or later. Still got Ohio State at home. They even have Iowa at home. I could maybe see him keeping it close in one of those games and shocking the world and beating which will probably be a top five team in Ohio State at that time and definitely a top five team in Iowa but I just don't think they're there yet and it'll be it'll be interesting to see what Nebraska does if they don't make a bowl game because I think this is a do or die season for Scott Frost I think he has to win and continue winning and ultimately make it to a bowl game this year. And in order to do that, there's five games left 
on the schedule. He's got to win three of the five, and I, I just don't know if he's up for the task. I think they can get hot. They've been playing pretty good football of late, but Adrian Martinez, he just he, he got to stop turning the ball over. You're not helping anybody out there. You're not helping yourself. You're not helping Coach Frost. You're not helping the team. Everything is better when, when you win. Winning makes everything better. Easier said than done in Nebraska's sake. Despite Nebraska's shortcomings, which, honestly, I could really care less about that program, but it was a magical weekend in college football. And there were so many games throughout the whole country that reminded you why college football is so great and why we love this game so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the big show, the National Football League. And what a way to start off our very first NFL segment with some breaking news. I am reporting this news as it is dropping right now. This is absolutely mind-boggling, and I can't believe it has come down to this. But Las Vegas Raiders head coach John Gruden, Chucky himself, that's what they called him back in the day with his scary faces, very intimidating fella, but John Gruden has resigned as head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Of course, he's been under public scrutiny the last couple days regarding some comments that he has made, some homophobic and misogynistic remarks that have not looked well upon the 58-year-old head ball coach. So about 10 years ago, as John Gruden was a part of the ESPN Monday Night Football gang as a color commentator, he said some interesting comments about some certain issues and things going around in the NFL through emails. So he denounced the emergence of women as referees, the drafting of a gay player, and the tolerance of players protesting during the playing of the national anthem, according to these emails which were reviewed by the New York Times. So these messages were sent over to the former president of the Washington football team, Bruce Allen. Uh, And in these emails, specifically, Gruden called Roger Goodell, the league's commissioner, a gay slur, and he also called him a clueless anti-football P-word. I think we know what the P-word is, ladies and gentlemen. And he also said that Goodell should not have pressured Jeff Fisher, who Jeff Fisher at the time was the head football coach, of the then St. Louis Rams to draft quote-unquote queers. A reference to Michael Slam, who was at the time the first openly gay football player back in 2014. Gruden also criticized Goodell and the league for trying to reduce concussions, and he also said that Eric Reed, who, apart from Colin Kaepernick, was kind of the main focal point in demonstrating uh, kind of the whole kneeling thing during the national anthem, Gruden pretty much came out and said that those players should be fired. Uh, and, and in many instances, Gruden was said to use homophobic slurs in reference to Goodell. 
and offensive language to describe some of the NFL owners, coaches, and journalists who cover the league. So obviously, this was um, this has kind of just been brought up into the forefront over the last few days, even during the Raiders game against the Bears, which they ultimately lost. And he was actually questioned post-game about some of these comments and pretty much whether or not they were pretty blunt with it. But one of the reporters asked Gruden if whether or not he was a racist. Here's the clip. Like I says, I'm not a racist. I don't. Uh, I can't uh, tell you how sick I am. I apologize again to the, to D. Smith, um, but I feel good about who I am and what I've done my entire life. And uh, I apologize for the insensitive remarks. I had uh, no, uh, you know, I, I, I had no racial uh, intentions with those remarks at all. But uh, yes, they can. I'm, I'm. Uh, I'm not like that at all, but I apologize. I don't want to keep addressing it. My, just my last question: Had the NFL contacted you, and, and uh, what was their response? Uh, what did, what was the response? I have not had any contacts with them yet, but uh, we'll see what happens here in the next few days. I guess that's my question: Do you expect something to happen? You know, I'm not going to answer all these questions today. I think I've addressed it already. Uh, I can't remember a lot of the things that transpired 10 or 12 years ago, but. Um, I stand here uh, in front of everybody apologizing. I know I'm not, uh, I don't have an ounce of, of racism in me. I'm a, a guy that takes pride in leading people together. And I'll continue to do that for the rest of my life. And again, I apologize to D. Smith and anybody out there that, that I have offended. Okay? All right, guys. Thank you. So that was post-game after the Raiders' loss against the Chicago Bears. Of course, Gruden was going to be questioned by it. That was kind of a no-brainer going into that post-game conference. But you heard Gruden himself denying that he is a racist, denying all kinds of other kind of accusations, but also kind of taking blame for some of the things that he did say and was pretty quick to apologize kind of in front of just the whole public about the things that he did do. And obviously, he was very apologetic towards D. Smith, who at the time was the president of the NFL Players Association. And during that time in 2011, it was a big deal with the NFL lockout going on and whether or not the NFL was going to have a season that year. And he just said some very hurtful things towards him that I know he's probably very apologetic about. And he did display that remorse towards D Smith and that whole players union and that whole situation. So just a real sad situation that has unfolded in Las Vegas. And for a coach like John Gruden, who is a Super Bowl winning coach, won a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in 2002 over his then former team, the Oakland Raiders. And now I guess former team again, the Las Vegas Raiders after his resignation today. But I mean, this is not just some average coach. This is a legit NFL head coach who was known for his offensive mind and his ability to put up a lot of points and the fact that it had to come down to this is just it's just an overall sad story for everyone involved and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with coach Gruden and kind of where he goes from here and kind of the steps that the Raiders take I know they've already named an interim coach uh, but it's it's just a sad story and something that we'll have to keep an eye on as the days progress. So let's move on to the 
previous action of this last weekend in the National Football League. And let's start with the game of the week. At least I thought it was the game of the week between the Cleveland Browns and the Los Angeles Chargers. What a battle this was at one point. Uh, The Browns had a commanding two-touchdown lead against the L.A. Chargers by a score of 27-13 in the third quarter. That was capped off by a Nick Chubb 52-yard run to increase that lead. But from there, it was purely Justin Herbert. It was the Justin Herbert show. How about four touchdowns? 26 of 43 passing, 398 yards for the second-year player out of Oregon. What a performance by this young man. I, for one, saw Justin Herbert as a player who always had the athletic ability coming out of college in Oregon. I mean, he he was one of very many few players who could make certain throws down the field that a lot of other guys could not make, especially at the NFL level when you have to fit throws into such tight windows Obviously, Justin Herbert showcased that in college, but the one thing that kind of stood out for me that was a red flag was honestly his football IQ. There were times in college where I was watching an Oregon game or doing maybe some film breakdown on a game where I would see Justin Herbert just make boneheaded plays, and for some reason, he has just figured it out. Obviously, he's a young guy. He's probably matured a lot since his college days. But this is a guy who has really taken the league by storm and has put himself in the forefront in the MVP talk. It's just a remarkable thing. I can't say more enough about Justin Herbert and what he is becoming so far in this league. But once again, an incredible performance by Justin Herbert and a disappointing loss for the Cleveland Browns who are already flaming Baker Mayfield. Obviously, this is a contract year for Baker Mayfield, so he wants to perform the best he can so he can get the best possible deal. Now, is he going to generate kind of Josh Allen money-wise, kind of that deal that Josh Allen just signed with the Bills and his extension? Probably not, but you would think that he'd be getting a lot of money, hopefully coming up soon as a Cleveland Brown. But there are a lot of people out there who are trashing Baker Mayfield in his play and I, and I know he's kind of gotten off to a slow start to the 2021 season hasn't been throwing a lot of touchdowns and whatnot and in his defense Baker Mayfield has called out his play and has stated that he needs to play better and in order for the Browns to win more football games and to get to the point where they need to later in the year which I think the Browns are a playoff team and I think they can still win this division but they're three. They're sitting at three and two right now. They could totally be five and zero. Oh. They lost a heartbreaking game against the Chiefs in Week One, where their punter drops the ball with the lead in their own territory, and that pretty much just sealed the game. Chiefs had good field position right there, took the lead, and the Browns could never recover from that. Kind of had a similar feel Sunday. For the Browns. This should have been a game that they won. But for some reason they could not close the door. You got to give all the credit in the world to the Chargers. They fought hard. I mean they scored 47 points. The Browns even purposely 
pushed Austin Eckler into the end zone with a minute and a half to go. The Chargers were driving in field goal range. The Browns were out of timeouts. They knew they weren't getting the ball back. Austin Eckler was trying to go down on the play, and he was pushed into the end zone so that the Browns could get one last shot. Baker Mayfield needed a touchdown, and he could not deliver when it mattered most. Now, a lot of people are flaming Baker Mayfield, like I said, maybe a little too unfairly. Let's take it back just a little bit and remember where the Browns were only a few short years ago. Does Deshaun Kaiser ring a bell to you Browns fans? I I just don't want to hear any more of this complaining about Baker Mayfield not being the franchise guy. Maybe he's not the prototypical franchise guy, but he's also the type of quarterback that is the perfect fit in this Cleveland Browns offense. This is a run-heavy team with two incredible running backs. Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb are physical runners who also showcase pretty good speed as well. They have a good offensive line. And like I said, I think they are probably the most physical team in the NFL. But I I think the blame on Baker Mayfield is a little unfair. And let me tell you why. It's because the Browns haven't had a quarterback of this caliber since I dare say the Bernie Kosar days back in the late 80s, early 90s. That's how long it's been, Browns fans. So before you start pointing the finger at Baker Mayfield, let me do you a favor and read off some of these names that have played quarterback for the Cleveland Browns in the last 15 years or so. Johnny Manziel, Colt McCoy, Kevin Hogan, Tyrod Taylor, Robert Griffin III, RG3 himself, Cody Kessler, Josh McCown, the ultimate journeyman, him and Ryan Fitzpatrick, of course. How about Austin Davis? Do we remember him? How about Brian Hoyer, the savvy vet? Or Brandon Whedon, who was like a 30-year-old rookie when he got drafted. The dude was 30 years old playing with college kids. No wonder he was dominating. Ken Dorsey. Brady Quinn. Jason Campbell. Seneca Wallace. Derek Anderson. Trent Dilfer. Charlie Fry. Jeff Garcia. Kelly Holcomb. Just to name a few. I could probably name another 15. But I don't want to hear any more slander about Baker Mayfield. Maybe he's not as good as some of the other quarterbacks his age. Like Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. He was in the same quarterback class and was often compared. But you got to stop being unfair towards Baker Mayfield. I believe he's the perfect fit for this offense. And not only that, but he is the perfect leader in that locker room. And he's a guy you can get behind. And that's the kind of guy you want in Cleveland. A town where it is about as blue collar as it gets. Cleveland, Ohio. Have you been to Cleveland, Ohio? I've, I've actually never been to Cleveland, Ohio. But I've heard it's very cold. Especially next to those bodies of water. 
There's not a whole lot to look at. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an ugly place. But Baker Mayfield and the Browns, he, Mayfield's given them some hope. Finally, some winning football. So before you get your panties in a wad, let's remember the Browns are only a few plays from being 5-0. and And I truly believe that Baker Mayfield will be playing better football as the games go along. For example, on Sunday, he went 23 of 32, 305 yards, and two touchdowns with a quarterback rating of 122.5. Definitely good enough to win the game. If anything, you should be pointing the finger at the Browns' defense, giving up nearly 50 points. I don't care who you're playing, whether it's Patrick Mahomes or Justin Herbert, that's just not acceptable. So anyways, the Browns, I think they're legitimate AFC North contenders, and they're going to be all right. As for the Chargers, they now sit at 4-1, and one, and I believe they are now the favorites to win the AFC West division. They have three games up on the Kansas City Chiefs, including their head-to-head win earlier in Arrowhead, which was an impressive win. But now they do now have that tiebreaker on them. How about this game? between the Green Bay Packers and the Cincinnati Bengals. It was just a weird weekend for kickers. I feel like there were a lot of kickers that missed a lot of kicks. And in this specific game, that was the case. Mason Crosby, kicker for the Packers, came into the game with 27 made consecutive field goals. Which is quite the impressive feat. But... He decided to miss three straight in this game to give the Bengals a chance. In the end, of course, it went OT. And finally, Mason Crosby hit a 49-yard field goal to win the game with just under two minutes to go in overtime. Even Evan McPherson for the Bengals couldn't hit a kick. It was one of those games where if any game was going to end in a tie, it should have been that one. That was hands down the craziest game of the weekend. And how about the Buffalo Bills? Looking like true Super Bowl contenders. With the Winter Soldier himself. I guess that's his nickname. Josh Allen, the Winter Soldier. It makes sense. It's I think it's winter 310 days of the year in Buffalo, New York. Not a whole lot of sun gets shined upon that city. It's, it's kind of like Seattle, but the East Coast. They're on two separate geographical locations in the Pacific Northwest and then in the Northeast. But I think the Winter Soldier is a pretty fitting name for Josh Allen. But boy, did he look the part of an MVP candidate on Sunday night. 15 of 26. He had 315 yards on, like I said, only 26 attempts on 15 completions three touchdowns and not to mention he was looking as mobile as ever 11 carries 59 yards and a touchdown he was looking like a human bulldozer and he was throwing frozen ropes all night long deep drop deep throw and it is pulled in for the touchdown Emmanuel Sanders 35 yards beat Sneed 
That was Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth on the call, courtesy of NBC. But that throw right there, I think, was one of the more impressive throws so far in this NFL season. The way Allen stepped up in the pocket, his mobility, the way he avoided pressure, he reminds me of a modern-day John Elway with that powerful arm strength. Not only is it powerful, but I think he might have a stronger arm than John Elway and is more mobile. Call me crazy. But Josh Allen is the real deal. And he, along with Justin Herbert, are two of my front runners so far for the MVP race. Now let's talk about the Kansas City Chiefs because what in the world were they doing on Sunday night? The defense looked about as bad as it gets. They looked like the worst defense in the NFL. They let Allen throw and dissect all over them. And not to mention... They even got in some pretty good rushing yards as well. It was just a very uncharacteristic game for the Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes threw two interceptions, which puts his season total at six picks, which already matches last year's interception total at six. So that's got to be concerning for a player like Patrick Mahomes, who's not necessarily been prone to throwing interceptions. So that's got to be a red flag for the Kansas City Chiefs. They have all the weapons in the world, but right now they're standing at a 2-3 and three record and dead last in the AFC West division. There is no doubt in my mind it is time to hit the panic button in Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes has got to play better. they got to utilize their weapons a little bit better. And they even got they got to play way better defense. It's almost laughable. It's comical is what it is. Yeah, they just played the Buffalo Bills, gave up 38 points. But the week prior, they gave up 30 points to Jalen Hurts and the Philadelphia Eagles, a team comprised mostly of young players and rookies. Before that, they gave up 30 points to the Chargers. Week prior, 36 points to the Baltimore Ravens. And 29 points to the Browns. So all of those point totals are pretty alarming. And I truly believe that the Chiefs, right now, as it stands, have the worst defense in the National Football League. And the schedule doesn't get any easier for the Kansas City Chiefs either. On the road against Washington, a good defense. On the road against the Titans, That'll be a tough one. At home against the Giants, they should take care of business there. Then against the Packers, Raiders, Cowboys, Broncos, Raiders, Chargers, Steelers, Bengals, and Broncos again to close out the season. So they're going to be playing the Cowboys and the Packers, both teams 4-1 and and looking like true NFC contenders. So the schedule does not get any easier for Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. And you begin to wonder that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers figured these guys out in the Super Bowl because they have not been the same since. A lot of four-man rush, two-man deep, and they just play them physical. Perfect example was last night on Sunday Night Football against the Bills. There were a lot of hard hits in that game, and the Bills 
I think, striked some fear into the Chiefs. And that's hard to do with a team that has been so good the last few years. And we have not seen this from the Chiefs before. The panic button is fully on. And it is time to make some serious changes in Kansas City or else the season is going to end in what I think. I I think they're going to make the wild card. I think they can even still win the division. But things got to change right now or else this season is going to get ugly real quick for the Chiefs. So before we call it a day, I say we go through each division and each team. And I'll tell you who are contenders and who are pretenders. So without further ado, let's start with the AFC East. The Buffalo Bills, like I said, I have them as my Super Bowl pick as of now. And they're going to be representing the AFC come February. I'm calling it now. Josh Allen has taken that next leap into being a superstar quarterback. So they're sitting at 4-1. and one. Patriots come next, sitting at 2-3. and three. I, I think they're still about a year or two away. Rookie Mac Jones, he's showed flashes of promise. And of course, they got a great coaching staff in Bill Belichick and all of his assistants, despite a couple weeks ago, he decided to elect to kick a 58-yard field goal instead of go for it on fourth and three, which kind of caused a stir amongst the NFL media outlets. And then we got the Dolphins and the Jets sitting at one and four. I think the Dolphins are... A lost cause this season. Tua is injured. Jacoby Brissett's a nice backup, but he's not leading anybody to the playoffs. And the Jets are the Jets. Enough said there. Moving on to the AFC North. We got the Baltimore Ravens sitting comfortably at 4-1. and one. They've won four in a row after losing their first game of the season. Lamar Jackson is showcasing that he can throw the ball. And that he's not a glorified running back. Tonight, Monday Night Football, he went 37 of 43, 442 yards, four touchdowns through the air. A career high in both statistical categories for Lamar. If they can get kind of that that kind of passing game from Lamar every now and then, that's really going to open up the offense and really open up the running game for a team that's really depleted on the offensive side of the ball. Next in the AFC North, we have the Cincinnati Bengals sitting at 3-2. Kind of a surprising team thus far. Joe Burrow just got admitted to the hospital. I don't know if you guys saw that, but for a neck laceration. They said he's going to be okay. And And I expect the Bengals to kind of make a playoff run at a wild card in the year of 2021. Tied with the Bengals of the Browns at sitting at 3-2. and Kind of gone over them. I think they can win this division and are definitely a playoff team in the AFC. And then we got the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are kind of a big question mark for me just because of Big Ben Roethlisberger. Obviously, they're a well-coached team under Mike Tomlin. Their defense is stingy at times, but is Big Ben staring Father Time straight in the face? Played pretty good against the Broncos on Sunday, 252 yards, two touchdowns. That's the kind of Big Ben that the Steelers need if they want any chance of reaching the postseason this year. How about the Tennessee Titans in the AFC South, which I think is the worst division in football? 
sitting at three and two. Derrick Henry, King Henry, as a lot of people call him. I think they're pretty legit. They'll win this division rather easily, I believe. I don't think they should be concerned about any of these teams. The Texans and the Colts sitting at one and four, and who could forget the Jacksonville Jaguars sitting at zero and five. After everything that, that that franchise has been through the last couple weeks with Urban Meyer grinding and groping with unidentified women at his own restaurant? Weird flex from Urban Meyer. I wouldn't even call it a flex. That's just outright unprofessional. They've lost 20 in a row. And they're soon to be threatening on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers all-time losing streak. Definitely not impressive. Now we head to the AFC West. This is also, I think, a top three division in football. Chargers sitting at 4-1. and one. I think they can win the division, like I said. You got the Raiders, who are absolutely falling off a cliff. Their organization is in shambles after the resignation of John Gruden. They started off 3-0. They've dropped back-to-back games, just like the Denver Broncos, who are tied in second place with them at 3-2. Broncos should have a good defense, but they struggled mightily against the Steelers. And I think Teddy Bridgewater can only bring them so far. I think they just miss out on the playoffs. And then you got the Chiefs sitting at 2-3, and a team that is underwhelming and I think will turn it around, but Like I said, time to hit the panic button. And so we switch gears to the NFC. The NFC East, also just a god-awful division. I mean, Washington and and the Eagles are tied for second at 2-3. and I think there's a lot of talent on these teams, but Washington, they lack consistency offensively. Taylor Heineke, he's a feel-good story, but... He's not a guy that you can really rely on. The Eagles are young. Jalen Hurts is still trying to prove himself. How about the Giants at 1-4? and four? Daniel Jones going down with a injury. Mike Glennon had to come into the game on Sunday. But he's played pretty well, Daniel Jones. He isn't the turnover king that he once was a year or two ago. But they still sit at 1-4. and four. The NFC North is interesting. The Lions keep suffering heartbreaking losses. They sit dead last in the division at 0-5. How about Dan Campbell? Literally crying at the podium after that loss. He was so proud of how his team has been fighting, and I can't blame him. They've been suffering just some heartbreaking setbacks. Justin Tucker, 66-yard NFL record field goal to beat him. And now Greg Joseph hits a 50-plus field goal to beat him. The Lions could easily be 3-2 and two or 2-3. Two and three. Then you got the Vikings, who are, I think, just way too inconsistent. The Bears, too one-sided on defense and not good enough on off- offense. And, you know, the Packers, they're legitimate contenders as long as Aaron Rodgers is under center. To the NFC South, we got the Buccaneers, who Tom Brady, the 44-year-old 40, wonder, is playing like he's 24. Just threw for five touchdowns, 411 yards. Got the Panthers who have dropped back-to-back after starting 3-0. The Saints, 
Jameis Winston, Mr. Inconsistent himself. Maybe the LASIK eye surgery that he had performed over the offseason a couple years ago is maybe paying dividends. But, I mean, hey, he threw four touchdowns on Sunday. But the week before, he struggled against the Giants in a home loss, which was not a good look for New Orleans. But this is a team that's very inconsistent. They beat the Packers week one, 38-3. Lost to the Panthers a week prior. So if they can get a little more consistency, I do like the Saints maybe making a push at a wild card spot. And then you got the Falcons, who are, I think, just a little too dysfunctional. And last but not least, we have the NFC West, which I think is the best division in football, despite the Seahawks and 49ers being in dead last at 2-3. and three. But the Cardinals are 5-0. and oh. And I think Kyler Murray, along with Josh Allen and Justin Herbert, has to be up there in the MVP race so far through Week 5 of the NFL season. Coach Cliff Kingsbury is finally instilling his brand of football. There's just a youthfulness and swagger that the Arizona Cardinals play with. And that's something that every player can get behind. They've got a young defense, budding stars and Buda Baker, Byron Murphy Jr., and even some veteran presence with Patrick Peterson in that secondary. And then you have the Rams, who are actually my NFC pick for the Super Bowl right now. I got Bills, Rams, Super Bowl matchup so far through Week 5. I think Matt Stafford has been a perfect fit for Sean McVay in that offense. And of course, the Rams, when they're playing at their best, have one of the best defenses in the NFL. There's a lot of football to be played. There's still 13 weeks left in the NFL season. So much can happen. And it's going to be so interesting to see which teams become contenders and which teams reveal themselves as pretenders. And with that... That is going to conclude the first ever episode of the Locker Room Report. Thank you so much, you guys, for joining me in this inaugural episode. There is so much more content to be released. I am so excited to get that out to you guys. Don't forget to subscribe on all major streaming platforms. Give us a follow on Instagram at thelocker underscore room report. That's thelocker underscore room report. I am your host, Griffin Conant, signing off. We'll see you Thursday to preview the next weekend of college and NFL football. Take care, you guys.